children's church if they'd like to go. And the rest of you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, that's on page 1035 in the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 15, page 1035. We're starting at verse 11 today. The famous parable of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And let me read the text. It's a little bit of a long text, but it it bears a full reading. So let me do that. Verse 11 says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, it's tough to even know how to preach on a text like that. (laughs) Just read it and then, you know, talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) You know, there's a word we have in the Christian vocabulary that is absolutely central to Christianity. Uh, This word is a very common word. Uh, It's a word that we use in the names of our churches. Uh, It's a word that's in some of our most beloved hymns. Uh, It's a word that is so fundamental to Christianity and the theological reality that it describes is so fundamental that if you don't have this reality, you don't have this word, you don't have Christianity. I mean, you have something else, but you can't have salvation in Christ and eternal life. Uh, And yet... I have the strong suspicion that many of us here really don't understand this word at all. Or even if we can give an accurate textbook definition of this word, we have not deeply experienced this word, and this word has not come to shape our relationship to God and to others. And the word I'm thinking of is grace. Grace. Do you really know what it is? Or even if you can give me a, you know, theological answer to that, is grace the atmosphere in which your relationship to God and your relationship to others lives or not? Or or is it something with which we're kind of vaguely familiar? Well, this is the parable of the prodigal son. I think it's perhaps one of the most beloved, most well-known portions of Scripture probably up there with the Lord's Prayer that we recited and Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, you know, Everybody seems to know this story. It's timeless. It touches people as much today as it did you know, when Jesus first told it 2,000 years ago. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son has inspired paintings. It has generated music. Uh, it's been called by some the gospel within the gospels because it, it so clearly embodies and illustrates Grace, so that even really thick-headed people like me can understand grace by reading this story. And not just understand it at an intellectual level, but to really feel it viscerally and to be moved by grace. And so this is, uh, you know, grace for dummies. This is grace for Jeremy to understand what it's all about. Now, uh, before we jump into the parable and and dig in, uh, just to remind you of the context, why did Jesus tell this story in the first place? And that answer is back in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Just a reminder. Uh, Look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the question is, why is it that Jesus, who is supposedly this great rabbi and this wonderful teacher, why is he associating with really bad people? Because the tax collectors and and, uh, sinners really were sinners. They they were crooks. They were scoundrels. They broke God's law. They lived outside of the community 
of faith in a sense. And so the question is, why is Jesus eating with them? Uh, and so Jesus tells three parables to explain his behavior. And so we looked at two last week, if you were here. There's the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin, and today is the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son. And so that's what this parable is for. Jesus is explaining why he would associate with very undesirable, morally reprehensible people. So verse 11, let's just go to our parable. Jesus continued, he says, There was a man who had two sons. So here we have uh, three characters. And really it's interesting because the parable has three, I don't know, you might call them movements or panels to it. And, and each movement adds another one of these characters. So the first movement is about the younger son and his exploits. And then the second movement of the parable brings the father in to the relationship with the younger son. And then the third panel is about the older son and his response to the relationship between the father and the younger son and what's happened between them. So there's this kind of building complexity to the story as each character is added in. And I think together, and even in their different parts, they teach us about grace. This is all about grace, is what this story is. And, and so if I could hazard to name the first movement, I, I might name it Grace Required. That's the first panel, Grace Required. And so let's just look at the story. Verse 12, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. <clears throat> now, you don't have to have a PhD in New Testament studies to have a sense of how insulting and shameful this request is. I mean, how awful to say to your dad while he's still living. You know, I mean, why didn't he just say it, like just come out and say it? You know, Dad, when I look at you, what I basically see is my inheritance. <laughs> I mean, let, let's stop mincing words here. I don't want to be your son. I don't care about you. I don't want to live on your farm. I don't want to take over the farm someday. I, I, you know, I, I want to go out and do what I want to do. And uh, you know, what I need is money. And when I look at you, I see a rich landowner, and I think someday I'm going to get your money. But you know, Dad, I really don't want to wait for you to croak. So let's just put all this aside. Just give me the money now, because really that's what you mean to me. I mean, this is incredibly, even more insulting back then when, you know, children actually were expected to honor their parents uh, in those days. And, you know, this was, this would have been like the scandal of the village. This would have been talked about for years. What a shameful thing this son requested. Uh, this son is the archetypal angry young man. The angry 17-year-old who hates his family and the only reason he's still at home is because, well, frankly, it's free room and board. But if it wasn't and if he had money, he would be gone. right? In this case, he actually gets money. He says to his dad, give me some money. So what does dad do? He divides his property between them, verse 12. Um, verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Uh, so he, he goes out and parties large. Uh, that, that phrase there, wild living, that word wild in Greek is asotos. It can mean wild or reckless. It's basically the Greek word for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So that's what he does. He goes out and parties large. Suddenly, everybody loves the younger son. He goes to this distant country and he's got deep pockets and all the people are hanging, and the girls are hanging on him and the guys are glad to see him. He has party friends. You know party friends. I mean, some of you used to party. Some of you may still be partying. You know who party friends are. They're the people who, I mean, they're, 
hey, how you doing? And they love you, and they talk to you, and they, you know, they hang on you, and they kiss you, and you're all friends. As long as the alcohol is flowing. As long as the drugs are readily available. But what happens to party friends when the drugs dry up and the alcohol dries up? They dry up. Poof. <laughs> They're not there for you. It's this phony togetherness that, that you have because you're partying. And so that's what this guy is. He's, just, he's got money and his deep pockets and everyone loves him. And so he parties and parties. And, and before we go on to the story, may I suggest that what we have in this sun at this point is a powerful, vivid picture of sin. That's another big theological word. You know, what does sin mean? We don't use it a lot anymore. Well, you want to know what sin is? Just look at this guy. That's the essence of sin. Sin is when we say to God our Father, I don't like your rules. I don't like working for you. I don't want to serve you. I want to do what I want to do. And so I'm going to do it. And we shame God. We scorn God. Uh, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that, that text. What that means is, is that we scorn and reject God's glory. And we say, I'm not going to live for you, I'm not going to serve you. And we do our own thing on our, our terms and we live our own morality and no one can tell me what to do and all this, you know, supposedly enlightened stuff. And, and you know, just as the younger son takes his father's wealth and squanders it, so, in a sense, that's what we do with sin. We take the blessings of God. We think of all the blessings God's given us. Family, health, friends, relationships, money. You know, and we squander it. We do with it what we want. And, uh, it, and so we, we waste our money and we take all the blessings of God and we deny God's glory and we use those blessings. We use the health He gives us to worship fitness and to worship ourselves. We use the money He gives us to to buy things that, that have nothing to do with God. We, use, we even use our sexuality, which is a gift from God, and we use it how we want. Instead of using it in marriage between a man and a woman, which is God's design, we, we use it for you know, personal expression or whatever. And so we take all of the good gifts God gives us and we squander them. It's such a wonderful picture of sin right here in this text. A uh, wonderful picture. I mean, a vivid, uh, accurate picture of sin. And, and it's not only accurate... Because it shows what sin is, it also shows the effects of sin. I think that's important. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Right? I remember he's talking to Jews here. So, uh, you know, this is about as low as you could go. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I mean, think, this is as low as a Jewish boy can get. To work with pigs, which are unclean, unkosher animals, and to be so hungry that you're fantasizing about the pig's food. You know, as you're slopping the hogs, you're like looking at that little pod, you know, hanging from the pig's mouth, and you're going, oh, if I could just... You know, mm, I just want that. And I can just imagine Jesus telling the story and the Jews around him, like, oh, goodness, oy vey, that's disgusting. Don't talk like that. You know, they're, oh, Jesus, it, stop the story. But Jesus, he just keeps, it's so low. This is what we would call hitting rock bottom. This is what we would call bottom of the barrel in the gutter. This guy has hit the bottom. And that's the other thing about sin. And let's be totally clear about this. Sin 
always, always, infallibly leads to ruin. Always. Without exception. There's no, <laughs> you know, as certain as the sun's going to rise tomorrow, sin will lead to ruin. Maybe not at first. Maybe not right away. At first there may be parties. At first there may be fun. Uh, and maybe not even in this life. There are some people who have rejected God who, who lead a pretty successful life. But eventually it will catch up. Sin never goes unpunished. And so uh, sin ultimately leads to eternal ruin. You know, I, uh, it starts out with partying in high school. And, you know, I, I just wish I could, I wish I could take those of you high school and college students here who are kind of getting into the party scene. And you come to church and you're like, hmm, you know, but on weekends, you know, yesterday you're partying and Friday you're partying. And I wish I could introduce you to the adults I know in the church who are climbing out of the black hole of addiction. And I wish you could talk to each other. So they could say, let me tell you what happens when you follow that path. And, and just see where it, it can lead. Um, and, and so they could say, don't do it. I, I wish I could take, you, you know, those of us who who think it's all about money and we're giving ourselves to money and introduce you to, to the 45-year-old who has climbed the Mount Everest of success and at the, finds at the top there's no one there and his family isn't there and his life isn't there and his wife isn't there and he doesn't know his kids and he's got all these things, but it's like, now what? Now what do I do? There's nothing else to do and I'm still empty even though I have it all technically. Sin leads to ruin. It leads to emptiness and destitution spiritually and ultimately in eternal life. Uh, sin leads to eternal damnation. Um, and so the question, I think, is you know, how low do you have to go before you get it? How far down am I going to have to sink before I realize the direction that I'm going? That away from God and away from God's law is the way to destruction and death. How far down do you have to go? How deep in the gutter do you have to lay? But then the turning point comes in verse 17. And I, th I think verses 17 to 20 are kind of the hinge that lead us into the second movement of the story. The first movement of the story is about grace required. Here's the guy in need of the grace of God and the salvation of God. And then the second panel, which brings the Father into the story, we could entitle Grace Revealed. Grace Revealed. In other words, what is grace? And I think we're going to come to the most vivid, compelling picture of grace that really I know of in the Bible. It's so amazing and it just illustrates what the, the gospel is all about. So this is grace revealed. And, and the turn comes in verse 17. The, the story begins to change. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's men have food to spare and here I am starving to death? What a wonderful gift from God to come to your senses as a gift from God to start to see things differently. It all starts with a change in your mind. That's the first step toward the kingdom of God is your mind changing. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 18, I'm going to set out and I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say to him and he starts crafting this speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Now, if just the paragraph before is a picture of sin, I think this paragraph is a picture of repentance. You know, you want to know what that word means? Just look at this guy right here. He's repenting. 
Uh, the word repentance means to turn. That's all it means. A very simple word. It just means to do a 180. That's repentance. And, and it's essentially a mental move. Re- repentance is not a physical thing. It's, a, it's an interior move. It's something that takes place within our souls where we go from looking at sin a certain way to now seeing sin for what it is. Repentance, this is another way I've heard repentance defined, and you know, a lot of people have said this. I think it's a great definition. Repentance is agreeing with God about the nature of sin. And starting to see repent, sin for what it is. And you know, before I repent, it's like, well, of course I'm going to do this. Because do you know my dad? <laughs> you know what a jerk he is? And, I mean, if you lived in my house, you'd want to go away too. I mean, you'd want to run away. I mean, you know, and there's all these excuses for why um, I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's everyone else's fault, and it's the way I was brought up, and everyone's mean to me, and I haven't had any breaks. And, and, and so it's justified that I would live this way. But when we repent, we're like, what am I thinking? That's sin. And I think the... The moment of repentance that's the most clear is in verse 18. This phrase, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I think that is the mark of true repentance is when we realize that our sin is ultimately against God. It's not ultimately about the dad. It's not ultimately about anybody except God. All sin is really a breach against God. So yeah, he dishonored his father, but... He's really dishonoring God because it was God who said, honor thy father and thy mother. So all sin is a sin against God. It reminds me of what uh, King David said in Psalm 51. Do you remember that? Where Psalm 51, where David repents. In fact, we ought to just read it. Um, put, put a bookmark here. We're going to come right back to it. But look at Psalm 51. It's on page 562. This is the psalm that King David wrote after he had his affair with Bathsheba that produced an illegitimate child, and to cover it up, David ordered for Bathsheba's husband to be killed. So this is after David has committed adultery and murdered somebody to cover it. And he repents. Look at Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. In other words, because of who you are, not because of who I am, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Have you ever just longed to be washed morally? Verse 3, For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Here we go, verse 4. Here's the verse. Against you, you only, have I sinned. It's ultimately against God. And so he prays in verse 10, the song we just sang, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. That's where that song we just sang comes from, Psalm 51. So now go back to Luke 15. This is true repentance because it's an acknowledgement ultimately of our standing before God and realizing that we are separated from God, not just from one another because of sin. And so he says, I'm going to go to my dad. I'm going to say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know what, Dad? Don't even think of me as your son. I'm just a migrant worker. You know what? I'm an illegal alien, Dad. Just pay me under the table a few bucks. I don't care. I just need to live. I'm going to go back, Dad, and I'll do anything. Just let me work for you. And I'll be the low man in the totem pole among the slaves. And so he sets off to go back to his father. And um, uh, that's how you know it's real repentance, too, is because it motivates change in behavior. So he begins this journey to his dad. And I was thinking about that journey. I was trying to imagine 
Imagine what this, can you imagine in your mind's eye what this son looks like? Think of him starting this journey. He's, he's emaciated. He's a shadow of his former self. You know, he's, he's covered in rags because he's been working with pigs. He did, we'll, we'll see in a minute, he doesn't have any shoes. If you saw him, you would hardly recognize him. And he begins this long journey. Think, just think of this journey. I was trying to imagine how long he would have taken on this journey. He's walking, he's walking home. He's going through a foreign country. All these lands where he has, he traveled to get there and now he's trying to find his way back. And he's walking along and he's starving, but he just keeps going forward. He's like, I'm either going to die on the way or I'm going to get there. But this is my only choice. And he's walking back to his native land. I imagine him too thinking about what he's going to say. Like, what am I going to say to my dad? Oh, okay, I can start rehearsing his speech. What's dad going to do? Is dad going to laugh at me? Is he going to throw me out? Maybe dad will give me a job. I don't know. But I, I can't, I have to go back. And so he keeps going. And now he's getting near his home. And now he sees the village where he grew up and he's walking through the village and he's you know, trying not to make eye contact and every once in a while people see him and, and they go, is that him? Oh, it couldn't be him. Well, it kind of looks like him. Oh no, come on. That guy, he looks half dead. And, and he keeps walking and, and finally he's coming near his home and he sees the lane where he grew up and he finally walks up to that gate where he played on as a little boy. And you know, I can just see him putting his hands upon it like, I made it home. Here we go. It's all or nothing. i got nothing to lose. And he opens that gate. He starts walking up the lane. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He could know his boy anywhere. He's seen this boy. He's grown up with this boy. There is his son. He sees the way he moves. It doesn't matter that he's all poor and disheveled. He knows his son. And he's filled with compassion for him. And then he runs to his son. You don't, old men don't run. (laughs) They're too dignified. Especially a wealthy landowner. You don't run. But here's this old, dignified, wealthy landowner. And he's running. And I just see the servants who are working with him like, you know, so they're running. They don't know why they're running, but they're all just running. And you know, he's running down the road. But he's running. And here's the son. He sees the father coming at him and he's, you know, bracing for impact. Like, is he going to throw me out? Is he going to spit on me? Is he going to hit me? He's going to, what's, what's going to happen? And he throws his arms around him. And he starts to kiss him. Do you have kids that you wish would come home so that you could hug and kiss them like this? Do you have, have you ever wanted your mom or your dad to embrace you like this? This, that's just, this moment is so amazing. This is a picture of how God responds to us when we repent. He runs to us. He, he comes to us. We, we don't even start our repentance. Look at verse 21. The son can't even get it all out. He has his whole speech he's been working on for miles. He can't even get it out. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The dad isn't listening. He stopped listening a long time. He doesn't care what the son says. He's shouting. The dad's shouting at the same time. Quick! 
Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Bring the ring. Put it on his finger. Sandals on his feet. Let's kill the fatted calf and have a party. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. And he was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. What is grace? And may I suggest that this is, rather than giving you a definition, this is the most vivid picture of grace I know to show you. That a father would respond this way to his dirty, low-down, backstabbing son. That's grace. The father didn't have to respond that way. (laughs) This kid didn't deserve a ring on his finger. He didn't deserve a robe around him. You know, what did the, he doesn't even deserve to be hired as a worker, let's be honest. That was going out on a limb, even thinking that he might get hired as a worker. What would be just? I'll tell you what would be just. What would be just is if when he came to that gate, if the father stood there with a couple big servants behind him with their pitchforks, and the father said, I don't know you. And the son said, I'm your son. And the father said, my son's dead. I don't know who you are. Get out of here. Can I work for you? Go find another place. My son is dead. That would be just. The son would deserve that for the way he essentially said to his dad, you're as good as dead to me. And if the dad said, fine, if I'm dead, you're dead, we're dead. That's it. That would be just. But what's amazing is that he embraces his son and shows this extravagance. He puts the robe on him and the ring on his finger. And that's what happens when we come to Jesus by re- with repentance. We come to Jesus and you know we're just bracing for the worst. And he hugs us. He throws his arms around us. He kisses us. And then he puts the robe of his righteousness around our shoulders. He clothes us with his righteousness. And he puts the ring of sonship back on our finger. And He puts the sandals of peace upon our feet. And He says, you are welcomed into the feast of eternal life in heaven. And He welcomes us to heaven. That is salvation by grace because of what God has done. Have you ever experienced the grace of God? That's the question that we all need to ask ourselves this morning. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you realized that you are a sinner in need of salvation? And that you've then come to God not to try to work off your debt, but just come to Him like this son, like I've got nothing except you have mercy on me. And then have you ever experienced God's forgiveness in your soul and heard Him say to you, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, do you have the robes of Jesus' righteousness around your shoulders? Are you certain that you are heading into the banquet of eternal life? If that's not your experience, then I would just plead with you I plead with you to come to Christ now and and to give your life to Him and to seek until you find the grace of God. That is the gospel of eternal life. It's salvation by grace, not by works. And oh, that the story ended there. But it doesn't. There's a third panel. There's been grace required. There's grace revealed. And then we come to the third panel with the older brother. And I'll call this one Grace Rejected. This is a very important part of the story. And I know we're getting near the end of the sermon and the end of the service and your minds are starting to get tired and so is mine. But um, let's focus here. Give me your full attention for another five or six minutes. Because I think what we're about to see in this last panel is in some ways 
just as revealing about what grace is by, in a sense, showing us what grace isn't. And my prayer is that as we study this over the next five or six minutes, that light bulbs are just going to go off all over the place. And you're going to get something maybe that you've never really gotten in this way before, like I did when I studied this. And so I just, that, that's my prayer. So let's just really focus our minds in. This, this is such an important part. It just seems like the end of the story, the after story, but it's just as much about grace. All right, check this out, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, asked him what was going on. And he said, your brother's come home and your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. You know, talk about bad timing. End of the day, this guy's tired. He's been working in the fields all day. He's exhausted. He wants a bath. He wants, you know, just watch some TV or whatever. I mean, this guy is, he's wiped out. And to come home then and to see like this, you know, boom, boom, the music is pumping and the fife is playing and, you know, people, there's lights, there's celebration. He's like, what is going on? This, we don't have any guests over. It's not. It's a surprise party. No, it's not my birthday. It's not Dad's birthday. What is it? And so he asks, you know, the servant. He's like, "Oh, your brother's home. You know, your dad killed the special calf that we reserve for only the most sacred of occasions." And uh, imagine what the brother's thinking. Well, it tells us just as the father responded with compassion, the brother responds with anger, which actually is quite justified, I think, at one level. Verse twenty-eight. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Isn't it interesting that the older brother is also estranged and outside of the party? Just like the younger brother was, though for different reasons. But they're both outside. They're both estranged. They both don't get grace. And now the younger son has come and experienced grace, but the older son doesn't get grace. He's rejected grace. He has rejected the father's grace to his younger brother. You know, I, I thought of the older brother. I thought of Jonah. Remember the Old, old Testament story of Jonah? Jonah? God says, Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah's like, I don't want to preach to the Ninevites. They're like the most wicked people on the face of the earth, God. You know, It's like, I don't want to preach to them. And so he runs away, and then the whale, and then he gets spit out. And then he eventually gets to Nineveh, and he preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent. And then God forgives them, and Jonah's like, well, that's why I didn't want to go there, God, because I knew that if I preached, they'd repent, and then you'd forgive them. And he's so ticked at the grace of God. Like, you know, I want them to suffer. You know, I want to sit there and watch you nuke them, God, because they're bad. And that's the older brother. He rejects the grace of God. He doesn't want anything to do with the grace of God. But notice another way in which he rejects the grace of God. Look at this. All right, this is where I you know, zero in with laser vision. Verse 29. Listen to what he says. Listen to how he conceptualizes his relationship to the Father. He says, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And the word for orders there is entole in Greek, which everywhere else in Luke refers to commandments, the commands of God, the law. And he says, yet you never gave me a young goat, and then my brother comes home who squandered his property on prostitutes, and you kill the fatted calf. So how does he think of his relationship with the Father? In terms of rules to be kept, work to be done, and profit or reward to be gained because he kept the rules. 
In other words, he thinks about his relationship with God the way the Pharisees think about their relationship to God. This is an indictment of the Pharisees. It's religion that he's talking about. And by religion, I mean an approach to God that is based upon keeping rules in order to get rewards. That's religion. That the way to God is, all right, I've got to get this right, I've got to go to church, I've got to serve on this committee, I can't do this, can't do that. And there's many of us who think that we are Christians because we are religious. And we have missed grace. You still don't know what grace is. Some of you are irreligious. And you've wrecked your lives and you're like, you know what, I've got to get this straightened out. Alright? Pastor, you convicted me in this sermon. I'm, not, I'm, I'm the younger son and I'm going to change now. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to join a Bible study. I'm going to get it right. And all you've done is substituted one way of being estranged for another way of being estranged, which is religion. And you don't get grace. And so you're still outside because you think that that's what saves us as religion. It's not religion. Right? And so, the, uh, you know, you can always tell a religious person. You know how you can tell a religious person? Besides the fact that they're religious and they go to church and all that and they don't do the bad things, the out, very outward bad things. Religious people, they can't, they can't forgive people. They're very bitter. Religious people are very into justice. Religious people, that's their word, justice. They love justice. They love to see people get it. Religious people have no clue how to interpret the fact that those Amish people were trying to forgive the gunman who killed the girls. That just does not compute to the religious mind. Like, you know, religious people, they love the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where the fire comes down and blows everyone up. That's the story they like. And, and, that's, and I'm not trying to deny the justice of God. It, it's there. But the religious person, in a sense, denies the, the grace of God. They don't get grace. And, and so they're very into that. And, and they're very, you know, narrow. And they want to blast people. Um, religious people get very upset when things don't go well for them. This does not fit their theology. God, how could this happen to me? Don't you know I serve on this committee and I, you know, do this in my church and I go to church and I, you know, here's my resume of good behavior, God. And so you haven't even given me a fatted calf. I mean, you haven't given me a goat. You know, instead, this happens to me, this happens to me. And then there's some bad people over there and they're doing very well. And so, you know, how can this be? Because the religious person assumes that they're owed these things for good behavior. But they've missed the grace of God, which is a free gift to sinners who will simply come to Christ. And so the question for us is, how are you relating to God? Is it by grace or by... Are you rebellion? Are you religious? Or have you come to receive grace? to understand that our standing with God is only through the blood of Jesus, that it is Jesus' righteousness, not ours, that makes us acceptable to God. So you need to turn to the grace of God. And so the story ends, verse 31. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. This whole place is yours now. But we have had, we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother of, this brother of yours, your brother too, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He's lost and is found. And then the story ends. And it kind of ends abruptly, right? Because what does the older brother do? Does he go in? Is there peace in the family? 
Is there reconciliation? Does he wander off? It just ends. Boop. It's like, I need a little more. And the reason it ends, of course, is because we have to end the story in our own lives. That's why it ends that way. It's because now it's up to me to provide the last panel. How will I respond to the grace of God? If, am I a younger brother who needs to receive forgiveness and grace? Am I an older brother who needs to come to understand grace in a deeper way? And may God give us grace to know His grace. Heavenly Father, You are so compassionate. You are so merciful. And Lord, we come to You as repentant sinners. Some of us, Lord, need to repent of just worldliness and unbelief and self-direction. And some of us, Lord, need to repent of, the, of a kind of religion that has the form of godliness but denies its power. Some of us need to repent, Lord, of, of being uh, self-righteous rule keepers and Pharisees who don't understand the compassion and mercy that was shown us in our salvation and so we don't extend it to others. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever our condition is, that you would help us to receive your grace, to be melted by your grace, to let our stubborn and hard hearts be turned to to soft butter by your grace, that you might welcome us in and receive us. And Lord, even though uh, the name grace isn't in the name of our church, I pray that it would just be evident in our church. I pray, Lord, that as people come into this church, they would come to understand grace because of how it flows, not just out of the pulpit, but out of our lives, most importantly. That we might live in grace, that our families might be full of grace and, and forgiveness. And that, Lord, we might be a place where the broken can be healed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I want to sing kind of an old school hymn about grace. There's so many to choose from. Would you turn to 344? See if you know this old hymn. It's a great one. I hope some of you can sing parts. There's some good parts in this. So let's stay.